Can you open up to Acts chapter 17? If you're new, I just want to welcome you and uh, say good day, and I hope to get to chat to you after church. If you're a dad, I want to say congratulations, hard work, and uh, glad you're here. Happy Father's Day. Hope you had croissants this morning. And uh, for all of our regulars, I hope that we, uh, we can do without too much of an uh, in-depth recap over our sermon series so far, because I just, I don't think I have the time. I'll do it anyway, but I don't think we have the time. We have uh, been going through Acts in a way of, of looking, as we recap every week, looking at the main sermons, all of the big uh, preaching sermons in the book of Acts. Some of them are evangelistic. Some of them, as we're going to see next week, is, is to churches and church leaders. Some of them are, are, are in defense of persecution or of charges that are coming against people. But, but the reason we're doing this is because, like we said, the writer of the book of Acts is the same writer as the book of Luke. He, he wrote what Jesus began to do in his life and what the Holy Spirit continued to do through his ministry from heaven through the church. And what he does is he takes the, 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 uh, the sermons that are preached and uses them as the turning points of the story in the book of Acts, which is truly the, the turning points of history between God and man. And we've seen already that, that, that Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said to his apostles that they, and of course Paul would be added later, that they would be, after the Holy Spirit comes in power, they would be his witnesses through all of Jerusalem, the city, Judea, the countryside, even to Samaria, those half-Jews, and then to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that that is not just a, a vague statement by Jesus. That was actually taken to be, by Luke, a prophecy of exactly what would happen throughout the, the time of the first century. And so that's how Luke structures the book of Acts. We see the, the preaching of Peter and uh, Stephen in Jerusalem, and then we see others spread all throughout the whole town, the whole countryside of Judea, and, and more and more thousands of souls are being saved because that's just what God loves doing when the gospel is preached. And then it goes from there, it stretches out to Samaria, and even they are saved. And of course, what we've been looking at since chapter 13 is the gospel going to the Gentiles. In this amazing, unprecedented, mysterious turn of events that God had long prophesied ago, but that the early church found so difficult to accept. The same gospel for the Jews applies to the Gentiles. And last week, there was a, there was a great debate, and that's what we looked at in Acts chapter 15, a debate and an argumentation, and then a, a, a three-part speech from the apostles defending the fact that Gentiles don't have to go through circumcision or law or anything to come into the kingdom. Jesus saves us in our sin as we are, pours out his Holy Spirit, makes us clean by faith without all of the ceremony. And he brings us into his family called the church. So we're seeing now that the Great Commission is in full swing. After Paul helped make that defense down in Jerusalem, then he went back up to his local church, which was Antioch. He spread the good news of no circumcision there. They said amen and drank Gentile wine. And then he got sent out again on a mission to go through some of the old churches that he had planted. But also God took him by the Spirit and forbade him to go into Asia. He said, do not go there. Instead, he sent him a vision, taking him to Macedonia and all through Greece, in the, in the main continent, he preached and he evangelized. He went all the way through uh, to Philippi where he was beaten up. His back was a bloody mess. And then he took a holiday by taking a 100-kilometer stroll down to Thessalonica by foot. From there, he preached. The Jews rose up against him. He ran away from Thessalonica. He got to Berea, but the Jews chased him there as well. And then he got on a ship and to escape death, and to escape the persecution that would end his life, he went down to Athens, and now he's alone. Paul is now in Athens, that great ancient Greek city, which is now an outpost of the, the Roman Empire, a, a main city, I mean, by the, of the Roman Empire. He's there, and he's there alone because Silas and Timothy, who had been with him, have all sort of broken off to go back to the churches under persecution. And, and so Paul's just sent to have a rest He's sent to have a sabbatical because he's still healing from all of his beatings and he, of course, has not had a rest for many months. But in Acts chapter 17, as you look down in verse 16, you can see that it says, while Paul was waiting for them, his, his friends, he was meant to just go there, hide out, avoid persecution, rest up, take a holiday. Great tourist city, 
just chill out, Pastor Paul. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. That word can otherwise be translated convulsed. His spirit was challenged. It was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So here he is in this in the empire's philosophical center. This is like going to America and going to the high tourist points, maybe Washington and the great state city where, where there are where, uh, you know, uh, 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 monuments to the old political uh, historical moments. He's, he's going to the high points in, in, in Europe and going maybe to where the Magna Carta was signed and where the, where the Queen lives in England and where the, uh, where, where, where the, the, the Pope was first you know, crowned in Italy, whatever. He's going to the high points, but, but here is the philosophical capital. It's great for a tourist city. There's a lot of culture, but particularly what made it thrive over the many centuries that have gone past is that it is the thinking, thought, philosophical capital of the entire empire, the known world. This is the center of thinking which created the Greek world, which influenced so much the Roman Empire, which, in fact, historians say that all of Western history is just a footnote on Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. You take their thinking and you just blow it up on a grand scale, that's the Western world. We have our society, our way of educating, thinking, doing so much because of this city. And Paul goes there. No doubt he had heard all about Athens. He had longed to go there, this aesthetically magnificent, culturally sophisticated ancient city. When you're a Jew growing up in Tarsus, learning from the greats like uh, uh, Gamaliel, who was Paul's teacher, you grow up wanting to go to Athens. He would have read the books. He would have known the philosophies of all the pagans. He would have loved it. So he wanted to do Athens. I'm sure that he took a scrapbook. He had his selfie stick, and he had his earphones in to do the podcasts, you know, a guided tour around Athens. He wanted to see the sights. He wanted to look at the beautiful pictures, paintings, sculptures, and monuments. But it was the moral decadence and the spiritual deception of the city that stopped him from being able to enjoy it or even take a much-needed rest. They say that the, the city of ancient Athens was innumerable in its idols, that, that there was more idols than men. It was so full of idolatry all throughout the city. In fact, if you were 80 kilometers away from Athens and you were on a high enough peak, you could look towards Athens and see the enormous statue made of gold and ivory of one of their gods holding up a spear. The spear tip could be seen from 80 kilometers away, shining in the sun. This is a city known for its philosophical idolatry. And he was so unsettled in his soul because the primary goal, the first commandment, the most important requirement of humankind that God spoke through the Ten Commandments and on the, in the heart of everybody made in his image is worship no other God before me. And here he is, surrounded in this city that is under a deluge of demonic deception and idolatry. He was provoked. When Paul looked out over the kingdoms of the world, what he saw through the Great Commission lens was enemies on the horizon, that are against the glory of Christ. He looks out over the world and he doesn't see tourist destinations. He sees towns on a campaign map that need to be taken for his commanding general. When Paul looks out, he sees kings on thrones that need to be conquered because Jesus has died for the world. Jesus will conquer the world, is in the heart of Paul, by the gospel of Jesus. Paul doesn't need to wait for some backup. He doesn't need to wait for the cavalry to come, the ships to arrive, the swords to be sharpened, the spears to be grabbed. He's there with the Holy Spirit and the gospel in hand. He has all that he needs to do to take the most ancient and powerful and idolatrous of cities down to its knees at the throne of Jesus. And he goes to war. He knows that Jesus had bled for an innumerable people from every tribe and tongue and that that lamb sitting on the throne would receive the due for his sufferings. So he was sent to rest, to have a sabbatical, to sit and wait, but he would spring to action. Like, like David, little boy David, shepherd boy, 
He was just sent to the front lines to go and carry some food for his brothers. That's all he was sent for. But he went. He heard the idolatry, the blasphemy coming out of the mouth of that giant Goliath, and he could not do anything but spring to action. He took up the sword. He put it down. Being not the weapon of his choice, he took nothing but his stones and the sling. And here, Paul looks tremendously outpowered. But he, armed with the gospel, stands ready with certainty to declare the message of his king. He went to the market fishing for souls. And so uh, we we read here in verse 17, he went to the synagogue with the Jews and all the devout people, and then he went to the marketplace. This is where we get our our practice of, of Friday night evangelism. Go to the marketplace to reason with anybody who happens to be there. Whoever comes across his path is going to hear his proclamation, his public reasoning, and his gospel sharing. But what happened is, in verse 18, some of the philosophers happened to be there. Some of the people from the, from the I mean, the town is the center of philosophy. But in the middle of the town was, was the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, this, this, this hill that had a, had a debating uh, a structure on top that was dedicated to one of their gods, Ares, and so they would, they would go up and they would debate and the philosophers would be there having been learning there for about five centuries and some of them were strolling through the market. What it says is, it, it's quite funny because to us Paul's just this, this intellectual giant. Right? We have respect for Paul, right? And, and so he's, he's just preaching in the marketplace and these philosophers walk past and they say, what's this babbler going on about? What's he yarning for? And, and they call him this word, my, my version uh, uh, says babbler. <clears throat> what does this babbler wish to say? Yours might say seed picker. It's really just an insulting word saying that the philosophers would sort of use, saying this guy has, has no clue what he's talking about. He's just going around like, a, like, if we could just take an Australian translation, like a bin chicken. He's just going around like an ibis, picking up some ideas here, picking up some ideas here, going through the garbage over there, picking up some scrap ideologies over there, and he's chucked them all together, and he's got this thing called Jesus and the resurrection. This babbler is spreading strange foreign gods in our town. That's not allowed. And so they all but arrest him and bring him to Mars Hill, up on the top of the hill, stand him in the midst of all of the ruling elites who are so committed to philosophy. And, and all they do every day, turns out they're first-year philosophy students. They just talk about new stuff every day. They blog. That's, that's their job. They're bloggers. And they're there talking new stuff every day, trying to outdo one another in debating and new ideologies. And Paul is taken there and tried, as it says, just as Socrates had been 400 years earlier, tried for preaching strange divinities, which in Athens was a high act of treason. Socrates had been killed for doing that. And so Paul is put in their midst. Let's read what he says. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, and that in every... uh, now, now, before we go further, it, that sounds like a compliment. You're so religious. Wow. It, it's really this, it's technically grammatically neutral, but it's a bit of a backhand slap. Like, geez, you guys worship anything, don't you? Wow. You, yeah, no, that, that's cool. You do you. Right? Cool. Let, let's keep going. Sort of a backhand compliment here. I see in every way that you guys are religious. You're really a worshiping bunch. Four, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, and breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, As even some of your own poets have said, 
for we are indeed his offspring, they write. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed from the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite, One of the men standing before him was plucked from their number and joined Jesus. Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. May God bless the reading of this powerful sermon to us this morning. What we want to see is Paul's three-part sermon. He proclaims to them the God who is truly there. He wants to then show them how they are foolishly missing this God. And then he's going to proclaim to them that their ignorance is sin and folly. First of all, we see in verse 22 through 27, the God who is there. And I love that he starts with this. We're going to see five main attributes of God that comes through in Paul's sermon. He says, firstly, in verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Verse 23 As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore, hear this, hear this. What therefore you worship in ignorance. It says as unknown. It could otherwise be what you worship with ignorance under the cloud of lack of knowledge, what you willingly admit as ignorance. This I proclaim to you. He's starting with the fact that God is knowable, that in our postmodern, very similar to the Athenian time, our postmodern world wants to say that certainty is impossible, that we simply cannot arrive at sheer philosophical certainty because there's always going to be something in the world that is unknown. Like unless you have absolute, comprehensive, entire knowledge of every fact that can be known, you can't be entirely certain about anything. There's always that gray space, that that acknowledgement at the end of every sentence, as far as we know. And Paul says, that while we do not have exhaustive knowledge, we have been spoken to to by one who has that exhaustive knowledge. That God is unknowable from a human attempting standpoint. But because God has made himself known, as we will see shortly, he is knowable. I love that he doesn't pander to their cultural lack of certainty, their respect for ignorance. And in fact, in this sort of culturally insulting way, he just affirms their their ignorance. You call yourselves ignorant and unknown God, you are absolutely correct. Very religious. You love ignorance. How often do we hear Christian apologists or evangelists saying things like, you know, who can know? I'm a Christian, and personally, I have belief that Jesus died for me. Um, And I think, maybe, if if you spend a lot of time looking at some of the evidence, I I really believe that probably you'll be able to come to a position where you think that maybe Jesus is right for you, probably. And and I don't know, I, I think that you'll find it applicable to your life, probably, maybe. Probably not, but please. Respect me. I like you. I respect you. How often we think that the power of our witness is going to be in some kind of humble ignorance. They're saying, how can we know? And evangelists often say, well, how can they know? How proud it is to come with some kind of certainty. But it is in fact humility to know that dogmatically God is real. He's revealed himself to us. We do not come with with This mindset of impossible certainty. God is knowable. Certainty is possible. Dogmatism with humility is a virtue. And he moves on from this idea generally about God to the fact that he is creator. Look at verse 24. 
where many evangelists might stop and know that, you know, they said they don't believe. They're atheists or they're not Christians, so how can I, you know, get past the massive wall of their unbelief? The fact that we see from Paul is their professed unbelief, and maybe this is you this morning. You may say with every word that comes out of your mouth, I don't believe in God, but God's truth is able to pierce that profession and get to the heart of any man and any woman and any child. As easy with the confidence as us as we share the gospel. Their professed unbelief does not stop God's truth from getting into their heart in a penetrative way. And so Paul continues. Look at verse 24. Firstly, God is knowable. Secondly, God is creator. Verse 24 reads, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Paul is showing that this God who I'm going to proclaim to you is the omnipotent God who created with the, with the word of his mouth everything. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He created everything. He is powerful. Every evangelistic movement Every evangelistic moment, if we will be used by the Holy Spirit in power, has to start with a high theology of God. A great move of the Spirit that is, that is fast in its growing or that is exciting in its momentum will fizzle out to eternal nothingness if it is not begun by the Spirit. What the Spirit uses is God's truth. We, we should not think of evangelism as the most boiled down, bare minimum, weak and unimposing truth possible part of Christianity. The, the Jesus loves you and has a great plan for your life. Or in, in no other, other way will I talk about God as, as, as large, theologically massive, but, but I'll just tell you um, he died for you and wants you to come to him. What Paul does is, is he projects a, a large view of God so that when it comes to talking of sin and judgment, the urgency of repentance makes sense. He's speaking to the Greek philosophers saying that this God is the beginning of all things. Or as we might say in the, the Latin and theology, God created ex nihilo. Ex meaning out of, like exit. Nihilo meaning nothing. Ex nihilo means that God created from nothing. He didn't start with some kind of primordial goo and play-doh and dust left over from some other creation. He spoke and created the very atoms that would make up all things out of the word of his mouth. He is, as the Greeks would say, the alpha point. The alpha and the omega, Jesus is called in Revelation. The beginning and the end, the Greeks believed in. The alpha point, the alpha was the beginning of their alphabet. The, the omega point was the end of their alphabet. So what Jesus is calling himself, what Paul is referring to God is as the beginning, the overarching purpose, and the end. God is the omega. He sets up here when he says he is creator, he sets up the distinction on the highest level between God and everything else. Every, we, we cannot leave room for pantheism, panentheism, Mormonistic, multi-God, polytheism, Hinduism, Every way that the Greeks would think about God is being shattered right now. He created this physical world. They didn't believe that. A demon did that. He is the creator of all things, one God ruling over all. He who is without beginning and infinite. When you talk of God like that, of course the next line makes sense. And he's not sitting on the little seat you made him out of wood over there on the table in the temple. Far too infinite. Glorious, omnipotent in power is this God that Paul is proclaiming. Lord of heaven. Thirdly, we see that he proclaims him as independent, not needy whatsoever. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In theology, we call this, if you, if you just want a word to take home, use at the Father's Day lunch table, impress your friends. The word is aseity, meaning that God has, has being or essence, his, his source of existence in and of himself. Everything else in creation, every other person, we, we have needs, we have con, con, things that we consume, food, light, soil, whatever created thing it is, but, but God is 
unreliant on anything else except for himself. From his own being comes his own power of being, aseity, the sustainer of all life. And therefore, when, when we say that we serve God, we never mean that we're sort of filling up lacking God. He's going to send us a thank you postcard later because he really needed that money just as he gave it. He finally was able to make the payment. It's not as if we give our service and then God, God is topped up in his energy or his sustenance of any kind. He is served by us in grace to bring us into his relationship with him. But he doesn't need us like we need him. He doesn't need us like children need parents or like parents need food. God is not served as though he needed anything. And therefore, therefore, because God is not needing to take, he is able to give. It's a sign of God's absolute mercy. In God's aseity and his independence, he does not cut off from the world, leave us on our own and, and, and be absent. Like the perfect father, he who has all sustenance give merc gives mercifully to everybody. Life, if you're alive today, you have God to thank. Breath, every breath you take is owed to his mercy and everything, just in case anything was missed in breath and life. Everything is owed to God. We are in debt to his mercy. How often we, we hear, maybe our, our unsaved loved ones, maybe you would be tempted to say this, maybe you have said it, maybe we have friends who say that, I don't owe God anything. You know, to, don't talk to me about owing God thanks and praise. I owe God nothing. I'm a self-made person or, or I'm, I've, I've got here by my own skill or God's never looked out for me. Friends, if they have life and breath and anything, we should press them for their need to give God praise, glory and thanks. Paul does so. Everything these philosophers have who are so proud listening to this bin chicken preach at them, he dares to tell them, you owe God thanks. Everything you have is from him. Next we see his sovereignty. We've seen already that he says God is certainly knowable. He is the creator. He is independent of all things. Next we see in verse 26 that he is sovereign or the ruler of all things. In all history, he is controlling everything according to his purposes. And he says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He's a, he's a young earth creationist, if I can read Paul in his own context. He believes in Adam born uh, according to Genesis chapter 1 and his genealogy. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Paul is saying that every nation, every empire, every king, every war, every family, and every individual has existed when and where God has allotted in his own wise purposes. A war between nations has never gained a single inch of ground if God had not determined it to be so. And so again, these, these men who stand on the shoulders of the Greek empire and now live in the greatest, most powerful empire that has ever existed, Rome, they're being told, you've been given it all by God. You are members in his play. You find yourselves on his script. God has controlled all of these things. You are not the independent city-state as you proclaim, Athens. You are not the autonomous humans that you think you are. Athenian philosophers. You are under his sovereignty. And then we see, fifthly, he, sees, he shows us that God is the revealing God, verse 27. In God's creative purposes, where he put people, when he put people, their lived experiences, all of that was determined by God so that, verse 27, so that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. What this is, is, is Paul's, Paul's uh, uh, speaking of what he'll write later to mean in Romans 1, the general revelation of God. We read in Psalm 19 things like the, the heavens proclaim the glories of God. The sky tells us of the handiwork of our God. And we know this, that, that, that in theology we call it general revelation, that God through all of creation tells every human that has eyes open that there, there is a powerful creating God. 
I know that often as we, we push forwards in our amazing progression through science, people will be uh, likely to say, well, now we have science. We have less need to ignorantly say, don't know how this works, probably God. So they say, you know, now we have science. We can throw out all the God hypotheses and all the, and all the gaps that we just sort of sticky tape God on top of and say, well, he makes water fall cool. But, but what Paul wants us to see, what, what God wants us to see is that the more of God's creation that we understand and know, the more of his own power and wisdom and design and intellect in the workings of the universe, the cosmos, the plants, the body, that is God's own power on display. Paul is saying this world has borne witness to anybody who sees it that God is there. He put everybody on earth with enough evidence, in other words, to know that he's there, and they could, they could technically work their way to a sound knowledge of him. Except, of course, we know the fall. We know that it is not, it is not because of God's distance that mankind does not know God. It is because of mankind's willful blindedness. That we have sewn our own eyelids shut so that we cannot see the God that is there. We would prefer to worship God in ignorance as an unknown God than to grasp onto truth, which demands repentance. Oh, when truth, as we finally grasp it, we see that it points us to a holy, sin-hating God. Rather, mankind seals their eyelids shut, closes off their heart, and suppresses that truth. And so we see in verse 27 and onwards, what Paul has done is he's, he's, he's developed this amazing picture of the one true God that all of these idols can just, can just be broken down, left alone. You'll be offending nobody. So the one true God who is there with certainty. He created us all. He rules everything. He's merciful and sustaining of all things and who is speaking to you. Your philosophy, he therefore says, is foolishness that misses God. Look at verse 28, or at the end of verse 27. He says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, he's going to quote his own, their own prophets, in him we live, move and, move, and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul is pointing out again, God is not found not because he's far away, but because you philosophers who, who boast in all of your wisdom are blind. Like here you are, and the word there, seeking to find him, is really the word groping. It's like in the darkness, hands out, trying to feel something, and we're moving along the wall, we don't know what's coming next, and we're, you know, we're, we're calling back and forth from each other. Who's found anything, anything clear? And Paul's saying God's right in your midst with a megaphone and a flashlight saying, I'm right here. Which makes philosophy nothing more than fingers in the ears saying, did anybody hear that? What do you think that was? How should we interpret the, the world around us? I'm right here, God says. And philosophers again say, wow, how silent the world is around us. Let's, let's keep digging. Let's keep finding. He's insulting them. He's having a crack. He's having fun. So your own poets are saying, right, let, let's quote your guy, Epimenides, when he said, in him we live, move, and have our being. And I can quote the other guy. can't remember his name. Aratus something. He said, for we are indeed his offspring, speaking about Zeus, like we're his children and we're within him. So which is it, Paul's saying? Is he unknown and far away or are we in him? Is he unknowable and far away, or are we his children in his home? You can't have both. And, and so Paul's showing to them, in a way that I think we ought to, to follow in his footsteps, he's showing to them the inner inconsistency and ultimate bankruptcy of their own worldview. He's not, like I've heard preachers say, he's not saying, you know what, I, I appreciate your poets and your own prophets, and, and, and you might uh, equate this to saying, you know, read the Quran and find what's good and affirm it, and then read the, the, the cultural, you know, who, who, whoever it be of the day and quote them and affirm them in their correctness and say, you know what, about 30% right. God appreciates, I hear one preacher say, God appreciates the efforts you're making. No. 
Now, Paul is saying that, that, he, that any of your statements that you, that you want to believe that form a foundation to your worldview, they're in your own worldview utterly inconsistent. And so he's showing your own prophets that you've been quoting say that he's right here. Then why are you groping in darkness? The answer comes in Romans 1. Can you turn with me there? Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. The reason that this knowable God is so unknown to mankind. It says in verse 18, Paul writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and the unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Suppressing the truth is your nature as a human if you have not been born again. And suppressing the truth assumes two things. First of all, that you have the truth, you understand part of the truth, and that then you cover it up, push it down, and try and keep it under the surface. Like, like you're hiding a, 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 nuclear, a nuclear bomb under dirt, hoping that the shining won't come through. Or maybe you've been a kid and you've had the beach ball at the water and you try and hold it down, hide it from your siblings, and it always just wants to pop up. That's the knowledge of God in the heart of unbelievers. It's there, you have it, but you're seeking to suppress it. Keep going. Verse 20, for the invisible attributes of God, and namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that all are without excuse. No one in the world is truly, in the truest sense of it, an atheist. Everyone knows that the true God is witnessing to them through the world. Verse 21 says, Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became, here's him defining religion without Jesus. Here's him defining philosophy without the Bible. They became baseless, futile, useless, vain in their thinking, and their foolish Hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Here's the Athenian philosophers listening to this Jewish seed picker tell them all of their philosophy is tape around their eyes, foam shoved in their ears, digging their head into the sand, thinking they're pretty smart. He's showing to them the bankruptness of their own worldview. And he shows in verse 29 also. Can you look in verse 29 of Acts 17? He says, while you should know, you ought to know, instead of taking the truth and building upon it a good and sound theology of God, instead what mankind always does is verse 29, even though we're God's offspring, we ought to know, therefore, that the divine being is, is, is that, not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So again, he's saying it's, it's not a good thing, at least taking a few baby steps in the right direction to set up an idol and say, at least I'm not an atheist, and start worshipping that idol. That, that's not a good step. Paul's saying that that philosophy, religion, idolatry, is taking the truth that God has given, revealing it, and walking directly in the opposite direction. There is nothing to be affirmed or accepted, or applauded about pagan idolatry, or about philosophical atheism. You don't hear him saying, I affirm and want to respect your view. He simply proclaims the good news of God's grace to them. And here he shows us in verse 30 through 32, what this God that they suppress has done. Look at verse 30. The grace in these passages. He says in verse 30, the times of ignorance... God overlooked. Now, this doesn't mean, as so many maybe want to pull from that, oh, so God excused idolatry and, and paganism and all those who didn't know of the gospel and God. that he, he excuses all of it up until Jesus. Or even today, he excuses it all until you hear about Jesus and now you're culpable for sin. In other words, the, the question, what happens to the, to the pagan who doesn't hear the gospel? Does God judge them on their best efforts? Does God let them in because they could have known better? No, that's not what Paul is saying. When he says overlooked, God overlooked all of their sin up until now. He's really answering their internal question. 
Because these are pagans who know that every storm that comes through, every plague that breaks out, every time that somebody dies of some catastrophic thing, we're supposed to conclude that God, the gods don't approve of something. So we change our practice and we kill a few more lambs or we send them a few more virgins. We know how this works. So Paul, Paul, you're saying the one God, Lord of heaven and earth, so powerful, hates our philosophy and worship? Where's this guy's wrath? Money where your mouth is, God. Where's been all your anger? And Paul is telling them, do not think that God is slow or weak. He has been patiently, mercifully, overlooking it. That yes, Romans 1.18 says that his wrath is revealed, but yet his wrath is not so poured out that they receive what they deserve. He's overlooked the ignorance with so much patience for two reasons. Number one, because they owe this, because they owe this debt to God and therefore are obligated towards his mercy. He's, he's, he's being patient so that they can be around, so that the, the nations in the allotted periods that he has given can still exist for them to be able to hear the gospel. That God has a plan that he did not want to, again, send a deluge to destroy all, but he wanted to leave them in their grace, punishing them here and there if necessary, but leaving people alive that there might be many tribes, many tongues, many nations to hear and be saved by the gospel of Jesus. God graciously let them be alive so that they could find salvation in Jesus Christ, but also because judgment is coming. Look at the rest of verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because... He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He's saying that judgment is coming, so God doesn't mind to, to put it off a little bit. He doesn't mind waiting 80 years for you till you die, a few hundred years for the Greek empire to collapse, maybe a few thousand years for world history to end. He can wait and delay the judgment because when it falls, it will be perfect. It will be righteous and it will be final. It will be perfect because, because it's God who is doing the judging. This God who knows all, who created all. He's going to be doing the judging, and so do not worry about him missing anything. Don't we worry about that when things are being taken to court? You're just worried that, that somebody might have a better lawyer than you. They might find things that, 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 that look condemning but are actually not true. You, you hope that, that, that injustice, injustice and unrighteousness doesn't happen in the court. Well, God is saying that when he judges, it'll be thorough. There'll be nothing overlooked. No sin left unturned. Nothing will be left unpunished. And it will be righteous, he says. The judgment will be in righteousness. That you'll never be condemned for something you didn't do. You'll never be blamed for something that somebody else did. But friends, you will be held accountable for everything you've done according to the perfect standards of God's righteousness. And it is final. There is only going to be one judgment day, Paul is saying. There's only going to be one moment of judgment for each person, and there will be no appeals. There will be no probation. There will be no release on good behavior. There will be no chance to appeal later on. There is one day of judgment without a second chance. You're living in your second chance right now. Paul says that to the Athenians, I say that to you, may you say that to your lost loved ones as well. There won't be a moment after death. Death seals that day for you and everything that you've lived in and by will be judged perfectly. But there is one. There is one raised from the dead doing that judging, Jesus Christ. And when anybody comes to him for judgment, who have placed their faith in him and their trust in him. He looks at them and sees his own record. He looks at them and sees his own perfection on their account. He looks at them and sees perfect pleasure before the Father and meets out, pours out no punishment. For those in Jesus, judgment day is a welcome into paradise. For those who wisely try to use their philosophy and religion to deny God and the gospel, will find it a day of terror.
God has given ample evidence of that coming judgment day by raising Jesus from the dead. Turn from the idols, Paul is saying. Turn from all of this and come to Jesus for how much worse. God holds you accountable for rejecting the truth in creation. How much worse will be your sin when you reject the answer coming to you in Jesus? And yet we see. The Athenians largely mocked him and said, yeah, sure, we'll put in our calendar at some point. We'll, we'll hear from you again later. Don't come back. That's what they say, politely excuse him. We'll hear you again about this. And they mocked when they heard about being resurrected from the dead. But some believed. The power of the gospel brought some into salvation. And so we, hear, we see here this morning this, this idea of the transition from Old Testament, Old Covenant to New Covenant. These are some of the questions we've been seeking to ask each week. How does this sermon show us the difference between Old Testament times and New Testament times? Largely, Paul has said, for the Gentiles, God was patient. He was punishing them here and there, like we said, but largely he was just patient with them, waiting them out, letting them do what they did, and really their command was, leave the Jews alone. You do that, you do okay. You come against them, I'll, I'll punish you. But basically, leave the Jews alone. And now what's the command to everyone, everywhere? It's repent. Make your way into the kingdom that God has established through Israel's Messiah. Where the world was left in their ignorance and darkness, God now commands the light to go to all and all to repent at its arrival. The Gentiles are now a mission field rather than being the personified enemies of God's spiritual enmity. And we see, of course, how this preaches Christ, don't we? All mankind has before them truth that they suppress and set up some other versions of their own truth. And in Jesus, where there was ignorance, we see God's truth on full display. That to see him is to see the Father. God has sent and given perfect witness of himself through Jesus. We see also that he is the only Savior. There is not going to be a Greek Athenian Messiah come later. There's not going to be an Indian, an Indian, Chinese, Antarctic Messiah come at some different time. There's one Messiah. There's one man to judge. It's Jesus. There's one salvation to enter through by faith alone because he died for any who will come. And so Paul proclaims. And this sermon is showing us that Paul is at the highest point of the pagan world and he will go everywhere, but he will first take souls from here. The world is the mission field. Jesus is the saviour of anyone and that he will judge. It shows us that Jesus did not just die in defeat, but he rose in victory, was ascended in glory, and will come back in judgment. This needs to be first, foremost, and primary to every Christian. We must know that if the, the truth of Jesus on the throne really is true, it makes the mission so urgent. It makes Paul's holiday-turned-missionary evangelistic day make a lot of sense. How much we, we are in lethargy, how often we, we're sleeping at the wheel when we need to be proclaiming, we need to be giving witness, we need to be using our life, our energy, our bodies, our intellect, our time, our money, our families for the proclamation of the gospel. And maybe we can end here with this piece of application from what we see, see Paul doing. We see him not meeting the ideologies of, our, of, our, of his day. We need to be church. If, if we want to be that which is on mission, preaching Jesus, seeing the gospel take ground, we need to be that which is willing to be salt and light. Which when the world is a rotting corpse in darkness, salt and light is something quite different. It's got a bit of a bite to it. It's, it's giving witness to something other. We need not to think that our, the power of our testimony the strength of our witness will come when we are so much like the world that they sing our praises. They love us. We're just like them. You know, they have a, a view of perfectly respecting every other worldview. We, we ought to do that too. We need to be primarily affirming, not proclaiming. You know, affirm other people. Make, make 30 year long friendships with the, with the government, with the institutions, with your friends, with your neighbors, with your coworkers. And at some point, they might ask, why are you a Christian? Can you tell me about the penal substitution that God made through his son on the cross? They'll do that, right? That's what the evangelistic books tell us. 
Don't wait. Preach, proclaim, plead, pray for, like Paul. Always praying for an open door for the gospel to do its work. Don't leave people respectfully to their damnation, but lovingly plead, pray for, and preach. Let's pray. Father God, it feels so, on our part, insufficient to be able to come to such an amazing sermon and spend so little time on it. And God, even more so, to think of such a glorious gospel and and be able to speak so unworthily of it. Our, Our highest thoughts when we think of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Our highest, most pure thoughts, even they need to be repented of. We thank you for the minds that you've recreated, the hearts that you've given us afresh that allow us to know and delight in you and adore you and worship you. But God, our highest thoughts are far too low for you. The highest heavens cannot even contain you, much less the praise of our lips. God, I pray that as as the word has been coming out of Jesus' declaration of salvation for all, of Paul's proclamation of Jesus as God and as judge and as saviour, that anyone here who, who is at this moment outside of Jesus would, like Dionysius, like, like those others who are saved from the Areopagus, would you give to them a marvellous repentance that does not, does not try and get brownie points for their thinking and their religion and their attempts. God, let us repent for our attempts that are outside of Jesus. Please give to them, Lord, a a broken heart over their own sin and a willingness to turn to Jesus from their own idols, whatever they may be. Make us, God, a, a church that loves Jesus and is obedient to his mission. Send your Holy Spirit to make us more and more holy, following after the words that you have given to us in your word. And Lord, may you add to us numbers of souls from all over the city, all over the world. May we see your gospel expand. For God, it is glorious, it is powerful. We thank you for the sermon through Acts 17 today. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.